Thanks for coming out to week seven of the OTJR seminar series. It's a it's a real privilege for us to have Professor Paul Grady um, with us this evening. Um, Paul's no stranger to OTJR, uh, having spoken at a couple of our other events. So it's nice to be able to lure him back to Oxford once again. Um, Paul, of course, is the director of the Centre for Applied Human Rights uh, at the University of York, where he also convenes the MA degree in Applied Human Rights. Um, Paul. I think you're going to get a sense from his presentation has worn many hats in many different places, both as an academic and also as a, a, a practitioner. Uh, he's worked for Amnesty International, he's worked for Oxfam, uh, amongst other uh, human rights and development organisations. Paul's also the co-editor of the Journal uh, of Human Rights Practice. He's got a massive publication list. It would take me all night, I think, to recite it. But I think several books that he's written are pertinent for what he's going to speak to us about this evening. Uh, in 2003, Paul wrote a book called Writing as Resistance, Life Stories of Imprisonment, Exile and Homecoming from uh, Apartheid South Africa. In 2004, he wrote a book called Fighting for Human Rights. And his latest book, which I'll do the plug-in for him, um, because it's a really fantastic book, has just come out with Routledge, and it's called The Era of Transitional Justice, The Aftermath of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and Beyond. Obviously looking at South Africa, but also trying to say a lot more generally about the field of transitional justice. And this evening, Paul's going to talk to us on the topic of aftermaths, South Africa after transitional justice. Uh, thanks for being here, Paul. Cheers. Okay, well thank you very much, Phil, and um, thank you all for coming. Um, that's quite a build-up to live up to, but I'll do my best. Um, we've got an hour and a half, is that right? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm going to be talking, in a sense, to some of the themes that I raise, I raise in the book, um, but also, in some ways, uh, developing them a little bit. Um, when I do presentations that are based on, on that premise, I feel as though I need to start by addressing a question that I'm sure many of you are quietly asking yourself, which is, does the world really need another book or presentation on the South African TRC? Um, need is perhaps slightly too strong, but um, I'm going to start by giving you some reasons why I think another book on the TRC um, has some uses, at least. Um, I guess the first is that I, when I started writing or doing work on the TRC, I felt, and I still feel actually, that a lot of the literature on the, the South African Truth Commission is either too uncritical or too critical. Um, it, it falls very, a lot of it falls very neatly into two camps. Um, and I was anxious to try and, um, to be sure, explore some of the weaknesses of, of the Commission, but also to, to look at some of the things which it had done quite well. Um, and so I hope what I've written is something which is reasonably balanced. That's the first reason. The second reason is um, I was drawn to transitional justice, and I still am, because it is uh, a very engaging mix of law and politics, of idealism and pragmatism. Um, to be sure, we all will define the ideal differently, but the ideal makes way, to a large extent, to the pragmatic. But the ideal keeps coming back to ask for more over time. And these relationships, the relationship between the ideal and the more pragmatic, is, is a process rather than an event. Um, and I'm trying to make a merit out of a shortcoming. The fact that I took so long to write this book meant that um, I could explore that process over some time. The third reason is that, um, and it's not really an evaluation in the book, but um, it is, I guess, a more broadly framed assessment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And again, taking a while to do it, uh, publishing it 15 years, whatever, after the Truth Commission um, set up. Um, 
that has enabled me to, to look at some of the more medium-term impacts of the Truth Commission. Um, a lot of the initial assessments were quite short-term assessments around the time the Commission was in, in place or shortly after the reports came out. Um, and it's clear to me that there are certain influences that Truth Commissions have which take time. I mean, one example would be it takes, it's taken a long time in South Africa for um, aspects of the Truth Commission's work and findings to make its way into official education curricula. Um, so depending on how you want to explore the impacts of the Truth Commission, some of them are, some of the impacts can be uh, quite immediate and short term, some take a while. And so again, it, to, to take a while to write the book has certain merits. The fourth reason is that, um, I guess the fourth and fifth are about really the shape of the book and its subject matter. It, it became clear to me that, I mean, my background is in human rights, really, that this is not only a book about transitional justice, it's also a book about human rights, and it's about the relationship between the two. Transitional justice, as I'm sure most of you know, is a field that is dominated um, by human rights, but not completely monopolized by it, um, and increasingly less monopolized, I would say, by human rights. And so I would see transitional justice as actually at the forefront of a range of different uh, forms of social ju justice activism, if you like, which are increasingly hybrid, that draw on different disciplines and different fields, and are trying to make something coherent out of a mix, a new mix of different kinds of approaches. And um, that's, you know, for someone like me who's kind of unemployable out of a multidisciplinary kind of centre, that's quite exciting. Uh, it makes me feel like I have a reason to carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, the fifth reason why um, I think this book is worth writing is that it's, it's as much about the present as it is the past, and I think a lot of transitional justice uh, scholarship is actually falls into this category. Um, you know, we're, we're interested in looking at what are the legacies of the past in the present, um, and I suppose what I'm particularly interested in looking at here are what are some of the more enduring structural legacies of the past, um, and what, are the what kind of responses can... Uh, and transitional justice and other approaches have to what appear to be the most enduring structural legacies of either conflict or an authoritarian past. So that's a rather long justification for writing a book and taking such a long time to do it. Um, the things I want to look at are, are basically these. Um, very broad questions, but it, they're kind of pegs on which to hang some of the things that I want to say. So what changes and what doesn't change during transitional uh, politics and as a result of transitional justice. When does change occur? Why does change happen? And again, I want to look specifically at the role of human rights. Who brings about change? Who are the actors that are important in facilitating change? And finally, was it all worthwhile? Can we say? Um, how do we know? Um, as Phil said, I'm gonna, I will be focusing on um, South Africa, but I think you know, some of the themes that I'll raise um, also have much greater relevance beyond a single national case study. Okay, so in terms of what changes, um, I mean, I think with the Truth Commission, it's, let's start with truth and the value of truth. Um, this is a quote uh, from a uh, mother of one of the Guguletu Seven. Many of you, I'm sure, will know the Guguletu Seven were a group of men killed in a police ambush in Guguletu, Cape Town, in 1986. Um, and in this interview, she's talking about the experience of testifying at the Truth Commission in a victim's hearing. And what she says is this: she says. The TRC created a safe environment where we can actually feel that we are human beings and we have dignity. We have a name and we have a face. The way the hearings were conducted and the way that the truth came out, you could actually see and feel justice. 
This is one of those quotes where you're interviewing someone and someone says this, the hairs on the back of your neck kind of stand on end. Um, and there's a number of things to kind of pull out of this. I mean, one is this notion of a safe environment. Um, Alex Bahrain described the victim hearings uh, of the Truth Commission as a liberated zone. Now, this could be exaggerated, but I think what's important about this is this was a, a poor African woman and my strong sense was this was the first encounter she had ever had with what you might describe as a benevolent state. This was a state that had historically treated people like her, and I'm sure treated her, with contempt. Um, and, and so to say we are human beings and we have dignity, we have a name and we have a face, is an extraordinarily powerful thing to say. The other thing I'd like to draw out from that quote is, is the importance of process. And this really applies across any kind of transitional justice mechanism that you can think of. That the process, for me, is is almost as important, if not more important, than you know, in a sense, the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. How you do things. What she says is the way the hearings were conducted, um, and the way that the truth came out. You could actually see and feel justice. And as I'm sure many of you all know, the kind of linking two of the keywords of transitional justice, truth and justice in this case, is like the holy grail for transitional justice scholars. Truth as a form of justice has a kind of magic, magical ring to it. Um, and again, it's an incredibly powerful... This woman is saying not only um, that there was an element of truth there, but it also felt like justice to her. Um, so I guess my first point is to say let's not underestimate some of the contributions that uh, experiences like this and mechanisms like this can, can make. You can tell this is now going to be followed by a but. I guess in, for me in terms of what doesn't change or what is most resistant to change in terms of the legacies of authoritarian rule and conflict, it's really two things two systemic legacies um, that slip through the fingers of transitional justice and, frankly, most other kinds of intervention. The first is poverty and inequality. Race and class differences still scar the kind of human and physical landscapes of South Africa. And the second is violence. The boundaries between political, social and criminal violence are extremely porous, often before transition, but also during and, and, and indeed after that the socially marginalised, the politically excluded, the economically exploited travel across boundaries between political, criminal and social violence in pursuit of influence, status, subsistence and so on. And so, you know, I guess when you look at South Africa, for me the, the, the structural uh, continuities with the past are not so much the bodily integrity rights that the TRC looked at, the tortures and the disappearances, although these... Uh, to some extent remain a cause for concern, but poverty and violence. Um, and this is a story that's repeated elsewhere. So if we return to our storyteller, what, you know, what kind of impact does this have on a mother, a uh, mother of, of one of the Google Earth 7? And this, I think, is where we come up against some of the limits of truth. This is a quote from an American scholar talking about the work of a victim survivor group, the Kulamani Support Group uh, in the Western Cape. And he says, the story became not only an object vested with a kind of moral force, the story also became a commodity, something that could, literally, could be literally sold into the impersonal networks of international academic production, development, and humanitarian agencies, 
heritage industries and the global media. And the kind of backstory to this is the Kulamani Support Group, the main victim, victim survivor support group in South Africa, which started as a support structure for the Truth Commission, over time developed quite an adversarial relationship with the Commission and indeed with the government. And it sought to control access to its members and to manage the transit of their stories into the public sphere. <coughs> And one of the reasons for this was to manage a tension between, on the one hand, storytelling in a range of different sites, the Truth Commission, but also for government grants and various other things, and the lack of socio-economic change. They quite self-consciously tried to transform narrative and the research relationship, but if you like, truth, into a means of redress. Storytelling practice became a commentary on the absence of other kinds of socio-economic change. Ten years on, I went back to Cape Town and I tried to interview the woman whose quote was in the first slide. Um, and I contacted the guy who worked as my uh, translator and he said yes, he was still in touch with her he could organise an interview, no problem um, a couple of hours later he texted me and the text just said she wants 12,000 rand for the interview now um, I can't remember exactly what the currency was there but that was over 200 pounds and I'm, I mean I've never I mean, I, you don't obviously pay that kind of money for interviews anyway but I've never even been asked for that kind of money in South Africa and I was completely kind of thrown by this and so I called him up and he basically said she's tired of telling her story she's told her story many times and, and the expression he used was nothing else in her life has changed um, so I talked to the Kulmai support group and they said look we don't we don't advocate paying individuals money, you can pay the organisation money, and so we explored this as an option anyway. The interview never happened. And, you know, I guess for me, this is a, you know, it's a tiny story, but it's a window on what changes and what doesn't change in someone's life, and the importance of looking at this in a number of different dimensions and over time. I guess this was a woman who really felt that her voice was heard once, but probably didn't feel it was heard for a, a, a second and third time and whose, whose material conditions clearly hadn't changed. Um, and I suppose what this says to me is that transitional justice needs to do more to think about the context in which it operates. Um, and the obvious context that relates to this for me is that transitional justice mechanisms operate alongside the liberal peace. Countries coming out of conflict and authoritarian rule almost invariably get, they get elections, the rule of law, new constitution, etc. on the one hand, and they get the market on the other. Neoliberal economics. And there are winners and losers from this system. And this mother of the Google Air 27 initially, I think, felt that she was a winner. Um, I mean, if you like, the first part of that, the rule of law, the, the backward-looking transitional justice mechanisms. I have a feeling that if I'd had the interview ten years later, she would have seen herself as a loser um, as a result of the lack of economic change um, in her life. The other, I guess, window on, or the other form of um, structural, um, structural violence, if you like, or structural legacy, which, which lives on, is, is violence. Um, this is a quote from a, from a scholar again, um, and I've deliberately kind of taken out any of the kind of geographical identifiers from this. The quote says, the stubborn adherence to these categories meaning political and criminal, has become the Achilles heel of the human rights movement, producing a dangerous disconnect between the concerns that most citizens consider, consider paramount and the issues traditionally advocated by rights groups. 
populist politicians have stepped into the breach, many of them with individual and institutional ties to past atrocities, promising a platform of rule by the iron fist. Now again, it seems to me this is a quote that you could apply to any number of different transitional justice contexts and countries. It's actually about Guatemala, but it could easily, frankly, be about South Africa. And what it talks about is subtle processes of continuity and change in relation to violence. And the kind of disorientation that this brings about in a, a number of different settings. So, for example, violence is often carried out by private actors in pursuit of uh, wealth and power, rather than or as well as the state. The government, in its attitudes, may veer from an embrace of human rights and the rule of law, on the one hand, to muscular kind of crackdowns on crime and criminal violence, from a hatred of authoritarian responses to a kind of nostalgia for the past. There is such a thing in South Africa as apartheid nostalgia, believe it or not. The view of human rights shifts. Um, people in the past will often have seen human rights as certainly in South Africa they did, as part of the solution, as on the side of victims and the people. In transitional contexts, human rights is often perceived as being part of the problem. It's on the side of the criminal. It's on the side of the enemy. Human rights organizations struggle in a whole range of different ways, but one is they're often pressured by donors to move away from a purely adversarial relationship with governments to a relationship which is more complicated, at least has some kind of constructive engagement with the state, and in many cases should have. But it, it involves a significant mind shift. So, well, you know, it's difficult to tease out what's the continuity and what's the change. In a, in a sense, for me, the most enduring continuity, continuity here is a sense of insecurity that people feel. Um, that the multiple violences uh, that exist in a country um, often continue through the transition and indeed beyond. And, transitional, and the TRC in South Africa and transitional justice generally struggles to shed any kind of light on this shifting kaleidoscope of violence, largely because it focuses on political violence. And in South Africa, political violence as uh, perpetrated through political organizations. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't actors in South Africa who are shedding light on this. I mean, historians, for example, in South Africa have written for, for many years about the kind of porous boundaries between different kinds of violence, which were, were um, uh, prevalent throughout the 20th century. It wasn't simply a function of transition, although they, they perhaps became more pronounced then. The other slightly bizarre place, frankly, where you can get an incredible insight into the porous boundary between forms of violence now is by reading crime fiction. South African crime fiction is probably the most eloquent uh, insight into these, these issues in contemporary South Africa. So it's not like nobody is looking at what's going on here. It's just that, from my perspective, transitional justice and human rights isn't, isn't looking at this. Okay. So, I mean, those, I guess I started by saying some of the things which I thought were great about the Commission, but then some of the enduring structural legacies. And by implication, what I'm also suggesting is one of the dangers of the enduring structural legacies, one of the reasons why we may want to look at them, is that they run the risk of undoing some of the good work which has previously been done by institutions. Um, the mother of, of one of the Google Letters 7, I think, is a good example of someone who, when I interviewed her in 98, had an incredibly positive view of the TRC uh, and the new South Africa. As I say, I didn't interview her 10 years on, but my hunch was she would have a very different story to tell. So when does change occur? Um, 
There's a recent article in Human Rights Watch by Fletcher Weinstein and, and Rowan, which uses the analogy of the tortoise and the hare. Um, and I don't agree with everything they say, but it just did set me thinking about the kind of pace of change and, and this issue of when change happens. They argue that stronger, more self-reliant states, South Africa and Northern Ireland, the examples that they give are the tortoises. They say they're more, uh, they adopt more modest transitional justice measures. They benefit from a more gradualist, homegrown approach. Whereas weaker, more internationally reliant countries like Sierra Leone or Timor-Leste are the hares. They are pressurised by the international community and donors into early ambitious formulaic interventions, trials, truth commissions, etc., with mixed results. Now, as I say, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying I agree, for example, with the categorisation of South Africa as having benefited from this gradualist approach, but this idea of looking at the pace of change and when change happens, I think, is valuable. For example, we know certain things about the temporality of transition, um, and we need to learn the lessons. One thing we know, for example, is that reparations policies tend to take time. In many countries, if not most, reparations policies emerge five to ten years after the political change, usually as a result of victim and survivor mobilisation. The next point is a kind of related one about windows of opportunity and whether they close and open over time. And again, I think this is a very context-specific uh, issue. So you have, on the kind of closing side, you have someone like Carruthers, who wrote a very influential article called The End of the Transition Paradigm in 2002, where he talks about countries being stuck in what he calls the political grey zone. And what he says is you have an increasing number of countries that are not authoritarian, but they're not democracies, and they're not actually even democratising. They're kind of stuck somewhere in this grey zone, which is difficult to define. Um, and by implication, where a window of opportunity, which perhaps may have existed at one point for change, no longer does. Elites have regrouped, or whatever it may be, which has caused that, uh, that window to close. On the other hand, in terms of opening, you have the, you know, the usual example that's uh, uh, talked about is Argentina. Amnesty laws overturned, prosecutions become possible, um, etc. Um, and it does seem to me that one could anticipate in South Africa moments when you know, to use the Latin American expression, the past bursts into the present. Marginalised victim-survivor groups do align in some way to broad society. Balance of power politically shifts. Kind of more aggressive political and judicial registers chime. It's possible to imagine that happening in South Africa. Um, and if it does, it will probably do, do so around what's called the unfinished business agenda. Um, and sadly, there's a lot of unfinished business in South Africa. Um, there have been very few prosecutions. I don't think there will be very many prosecutions, but there might be some more. The pardon, there's a pardons process, very controversial pardons process, which is also uh, has been ongoing um, for a couple of years now. Very incomplete reparations program. Access to the archives. It's incredibly hard in South Africa to get access to the archives, um, and deliberately so. Um, these kinds of flashpoints have become... Um, the areas around which mobilisation has has kind of taken place post TRC. But what's interesting is actually how narrow the mobilisation uh, was. I was reading uh, someone's thesis on the train coming down, which is comparing Argentina and South Africa, and saying how in the, the times in Argentina, at least, the kind of social mobilisation around change and transitional justice has been very broad. 
not so much, to be honest, what's striking about the groups that are working um, on the unfinished business agenda is that it's actually not many of the mainstream human rights organizations. It's quite a small NGO network, Victim Survivor and other organizations that have worked on the TLC for many years in most cases. That actually a lot of the human rights agenda is happening elsewhere and is focusing mainly really on social and economic issues. Um, so the challenge for them really is, um, is to make the agenda matter to more people. A group of my students were doing a project on Parliament last November and there was a whole lot of stuff happening that was you know, it was in the press and so on, and they, want, they decided they wanted to go out and talk to members of the public in Cape Town. 90% of the people they spoke to had never heard of the bonds process, um, let alone, you know, were getting kind of het up or excited or had a strong opinion about it. So when changes occurred, you know, I think, you know, one of the things transitional justice doesn't understand very well is, is when change occurs, um, the kind of temporality of, of transition. And I think one of the things which is underestimated, particularly from practitioners, is, is the need for patience. And I gave, I gave the um, example of reparations, that things take time. And you also require not just patience, you also require a kind of anticipatory faculty. You need to be able to anticipate those openings of a window, which may happen down the line, and be ready for them. There's no use waiting for the window to open and suddenly think, damn it, I wish we had a policy on X. Um, so... I mean, it's complicated. I think in South Africa, you know, the big window for change, in a way, has has gone. But I can, as I said, I can imagine there being uh, moments when the window will be ajar, at least, in the future. Okay, the next one is why does change happen? As I said, my interest is mainly really in, in, in human rights and its contribution to change. And before I, I go into this, I want, I want to just in a sense, separate out a couple of things. The fact that I've identified kind of the two main structural legacies of conflict or authority and rule is often being poverty and, and enduring violence is a different thing from saying that I think human rights and transitional justice necessarily has a great deal to offer in addressing those issues or should completely refocus its energies to do so. It seems to me they, that they are two separate questions. But an answer of you know, coming up with those legacies doesn't automatically mean um, that transitional justice needs to completely refocus. I mean, I do argue for a kind of partial refocus, but um, as a colleague of mine in New York, some of you will know, Lars Waldorf always yells at me when I suggest transitional justice should do more. He says, it's rubbish even at doing truth and just, uh, justice. Why are you asking me to do more? Um, I think that's only partially true, and I think, you know, as I said, I do argue that there are certain things that transitional justice and human rights can do more in terms of this structural legacies thing, but it's important to, to separate out the two issues. Um, South Africa helped to launch, as I'm sure many of you know, kind of constitutional human rights and transitional justice as global discourses. It wasn't the only country that did this, but it is, has kind of, you know, I guess alongside Argentina, probably pride of place, really, in the kind of launching these discourses, certainly transitional justice. Its Bill of Rights and the TRC are you know, widely lauded and, and copied internationally. And I suppose in the process of writing this book, my question really was why and, and, does, and do these models merit mimicking around the world? I mean, my starting point about human rights is I'm not an evangelist for human rights. I mean, my background is in human rights, but I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, for example, feel that human rights are inherently progressive. Um, you only have to look at 
and the rush to embrace private property during peace negotiations, often one of the only things the elites can agree on alongside amnesty, um, to see that there's nothing inherently progressive about human rights. Human rights can be a regulatory discourse that kind of manages the status quo, as well as potentially being a, a more transformative one that seeks to change it. Um, and I suppose I've been trying to find a framework that, that explains that. Um, and one of the things which I found quite helpful is to, to actually understand human rights as a site of compromise. I mean, transition is a period of compromise, and I, I think human rights is not normally understood as a site of compromise. But actually, I think often in transitional politics it is. Um, and this quote from Ignatiev uh, begins to tease out why and how. Ignatiev, I'm sure you know, was a human rights scholar and I think was a Canadian politician. I'm not sure what he was. Perhaps he'll come back to being a human rights scholar again. Anyway. He's an academic again. Is he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, he says, human rights activism means taking sides, but at the same time, human rights politics is disciplined or constrained by moral universals. The role of moral universalism is to get activists to discipline their partiality, their conviction that one side is right with an equal commitment to the rights of the other side. So here you have an idea, someone who's saying that rights can be about balancing interests and weighing values and priorities, as well as making kind of absolute claims and right versus wrong adjudications. As I said, I think human rights is normally understood as adversarial, and it certainly can be, and is about kind of absolute determinations of right and wrong. It seems to me it can do that, but it can also work in this way of kind of weighing priorities and balancing interests. Um, let me give you an example from South Africa. Around the issue of naming names, the, the Truth Commission, as I've already touched on, was this kind of safe, safe environment, liberated zone, where victims were free to tell the kind of stories they wanted to. One of the problems with that was that they named perpetrators. Um, and without any kind of due process um, requirements or any, any potential for uh, perpetrators to and understandably and the, and the hearings were on the radio and they were televised and so on and understandably perpetrators were not very pleased about that so there were a whole series of court cases while the Truth Commission was sitting which clarified the due process or procedural rules of the TRC and the ultimate finding was basically that perpetrators had to be given reasonable prime notice that they were going to be named. And they had to have sufficient information to enable them to make representations and respond. What that meant for the Truth Commission was this enormous bureaucratic load, basically, in terms of getting that information, locating the perpetrators, um, getting information to them, providing them with uh, the space, potentially, to, to respond and so on. But what it, what it indicates is the way in which um, transitional justice has... Uh, and human rights has enabled the weighing of the rights of victims and perpetrators. Um, and it's actually an interesting example because I, I would say more, more generally in transitional justice, the weighing has gone the other way. That human rights has been criticised for, for um, overemphasising the rights of perpetrators, actually. That a more legal emphasis on fair trial and so on has often been seen to ally human rights with the perpetrators and ensuring that the Milosevic's and tailors and so on get a fair trial um, and that the reorientation more generally within transitional justice has been victims and survivors saying what about our rights 
Um, and there has been a developing discourse around that. And, but again, I mean, it comes from a different direction, but this balancing of the rights of victims and perpetrators is, has been a balancing act. Um, and if we're looking at aftermaths, it seems to me this idea of balance is, is actually intrinsic to understanding the role human rights plays in South Africa. Property rights I've already mentioned, the balance between property rights and land reform, an obvious example. Another example is the general approach of the South African Constitutional Court to socio-economic rights. It has this state-of-the-art, very progressive um, Bill of Rights with a very full set of socio-economic rights. And the court has had to you know, think through what do we do with this in, in you know, a, a developing country. And they've rejected what's usually called the minimum core approach, which is a kind of minimum threshold, saying that the right to water means this much water, the right to food means this much in relation to food or nutrition. Um, and increasingly that what they're using is process-based arguments about consultation, meaningful engagement. Um, in a recent right to water case, it's very much about balancing the market doing a certain amount in relation to, to water and uh, being a certain amount, sorry, at the start at the other end. A, a right to a certain amount of water and beyond that the market works. So again, a balancing act between uh, rights and the market. So. Um, I mean, that's perhaps more examples than you really need. But it's, I guess what I'm, I'm saying a couple of things. One is that human rights works in different ways. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a political scientist. And so I'm perhaps more interested in some of these more political, negotiated ways in which rights works. Um, although, albeit that it sometimes actually happens through the courts as, as well. Um, so I guess that's the first thing I'm saying. The other thing I'm saying is that the ex if that is one... if if not, in my view, perhaps the major role that human rights plays, we need to be realistic about the kind of transformative change that rights is going to play. That actually it plays a rather pragmatic role in transitional settings. Um, that its role in bringing about major transformation is going to be probably gradualist um, and actually quite modest. Okay. How long have I got? My do you need me to wrap up? You've got 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. OK, in terms of who brings about change. And this is really looking at, again, from a human rights perspective, initially, the kind of constituencies that we work with. Um, the quote comes from Duma Kamala, who was a, a member, of, again, a member of the Kulumani support group. Um, and he said this, uh, again, this was in the 90s, this was quite a long time ago. He said, you see, times are different. Um, when I was told that I was a victim. It was at the time I wasn't working. I thought I could get help so that I could change my life. Now, to me now, it's not so important to be given the status of being a victim. To me, it's some kind of suppression. Today, I don't want to be identified as a victim. I'm a survivor. I can do more than the status of being a victim. Uh, Duba Kamala was uh, condemned to death. He was one of the Sharpeville Six. I'm sure some of you know this case. He was condemned to death under a 1984 piece of uh, legislation, common purpose legislation, which meant, frankly, you just had to be in the vicinity of a crime rather than actually having perpetrated it. Um, a killing of a, a local councillor uh, for collaborating with the apartheid state. In 1988, he uh, received a stay of execution the day before he was going to be executed, um, and he was released in 1991. And he became very active in human support groups and various human rights activities. Um, and I guess I was interested, I think we talked to him partly because of the experience he'd had, but also um, I had a sense before I'd interviewed him that his sense of himself, his, of his identity had changed very dramatically over time. 
and I wanted to know kind of uh, sort of how and why. And what's interesting to me about this quote is um, partly the sense that initially this idea of being a victim was imposed on him. He was told that he was a victim. Um, and part of that, of course, was the, the kind of conditions and criteria of a truth commission is often that to qualify for something else, in this case reparations uh, predominantly, you need to be categorised as a victim. Um, and, and I guess in a way that leads into the next issue, which is I thought I would get help. There's a kind of, there's, a, there's both an element of imposition here, but also an element of instrumentalism. This is someone who is, in a way, using an identity to a certain extent, to, to an end, as a means to an end. Um, and what's interesting in terms of this identity and why it changed over time is, um, it's not in the, in the quote, but I got the very distinct impression from Duma that this change from being a victim to a survivor, which you know, I guess can be somewhat cliched and, and so on, but was very much something that came from him rather than something that, that came from me, um, had been brought about by his engagement in, if you like, social activism, his work with the Kulamai Support Group, rather than his experiences actually with the Truth Commission. The rest of the slide, I guess, just plays with some of the other identities that we might want to think about. The, I've already alluded to the fact that you, know, you needed to be a victim and categorised as a victim to get certain other things like reparations. And a lot of the commentary talks about people telling purified stories, it says one-dimensional stories, where they were just victims, frankly, and nothing else, um, rather than you know, creating an institutional environment where people can talk to more complex identities Many, many people in South Africa were victims and perpetrators being the obvious example, and all processes of change in their identity. Um, the good victims, bad victims distinction is uh, something that uh, Sepo Madlin Gozi, I'm sure some of you know, uh, has used quite a lot. He's also with Kunimani Support Group. Um, and this is a categorization or a distinction which he uh, talks about really having emerged after the DRC where there are a group of victims who are regularly used on public platforms who tell a story of uh, unity, reconciliation, nation building and so on. Uh, who are the good victims? But then there are the bad victims um, who may once have told that story but now tell a rather different story and their story is one of a struggle for reparations, for social justice, a denouncing of uh, the current economic situation, the lack of redistribution, etc., etc. Final pairing, I guess, are the the roots not gone down. Um, the category of beneficiaries, which certainly in my reading, someone like Mandani probably first used. Um, would it be better in terms of bringing about change, certainly structural change, if a category like beneficiaries, a broader category than narrow perpetrators of? Uh, human rights abuses were used. One of the problems in South Africa was that by focusing on perpetrators, it enabled beneficiaries both to condemn apartheid, because they could look at torture and extrajudicial execution and say, we didn't do that, that wasn't us. Um, so they could condemn apartheid, and they could also deny complicity in it. And if you want to look at the aftermaths of that, that, that framing of responsibility has, for me, had real consequences for contemporary South Africa. An obvious example would be multinational corporations, a very obvious beneficiary, and named as such in fairness by the TLC. If you look at the discourse around corporate social responsibility in South Africa, no one mentions responsibility because it, it has this horrible sense of something perhaps in the past. People talk about 
corporate social investment. They talk about uh, corporate citizenship. They don't talk usually about corporate social responsibility. Um, I can't say there's a direct cause and effect there, but I can't help feeling that the TLC possibly had something to do with that. The other identity which is bizarrely overlooked, and I argue um, for this, frankly, and no one in human rights that I know really wants to listen to me when I say this, is it's always struck me as bizarre that we, the kinds of interventions that we advocate in the aftermath of atrocity and which are intended to build unity and reconciliation are basically narratives of barbarism, almost exclusively narratives of barbarism. And, you know, for me, within human rights and the natural rights tradition and elsewhere, there is, there is another narrative about self-reliance and resistance and the role of, if you like, using a kind of a phrase from um, Israel and the Holocaust, the righteous, the people who, were, who operate across racial, religious and other kinds of, of divisions. Um, why, do not, why don't we tell these stories? Um, for two reasons really one is it seems to me that it would it would tell a fuller story about the past at the moment we get this rather bizarre kind of partial story um, about victims and perpetrators we would get a fuller picture of the past um, and it also I can't help feeling it would provide more suggestive identity coordinates for reconciliation and a more unified future Jeremy Cronin, who some of you I'm sure will know is a member of the South African Communist Party and a politician, when the, the Truth Commission report came out in 98, was horrified that the report invited South Africans to recognise the little perpetrator inside each of them. And he said, why are we being asked to recognise the little perpetrator? Why aren't we being asked to affirm the little freedom fighter in all of us? Um, and it seemed to me a very legitimate question. I realise there's hundreds of ways of asking the question, who brings about change? The way I've come at it in this presentation is to say, look, the identities that we look at and that we use determine the cast of the story that you're going to tell. It determines the relationships those people have and the kind of plot lines that are available to you. And this is an area where human rights has an influence on transitional justice, and it has chosen certain identities certain castes, certain relationships and certain plot lines how narrowly or broadly do we want to tell the story of the past who do we want to engage in a broader process of peace building unity and reconciliation my argument is that we need a fuller story um, and that this has a broader potential to, to link truth to reconciliation ok last slide was it all worth it um, I guess a qualified yes is the short answer to that. Um, it's in some ways it's an impossible question to answer. I know people like Lee have done a you know a much more meticulous job of answering this than than, um, than I have. Um, I guess my first my first problem with this is that you don't know what would have happened if another set of interventions had been chosen. If South Africa hadn't spent money on the Truth Commission and invested it all in development, who knows? I, my sense is it probably wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. But the roads not travelled argument, you know, is a relevant one. The issue of impact and evaluation, you know, transitional justice, you know, if you look at the arc of new ideas and particular kinds of interventions, they follow a very similar trail. I mean, if you look back at sort of development, 
uh, trends in development and so on. Evaluation comes at a certain moment, and transitional justice has kind of got to that moment fairly recently where it needs to defend itself to donors and others through evaluation and through proving that it actually makes a difference. And so it's had to address these questions about what, what on earth do we mean by impact? Where and on whom? Um, so, for example, just to illustrate how complicated it is, there are two major evaluations of the TLC, one by a guy called Gibson, which is based on public, uh, public opinion surveys, and one by Van der Merwe and Chapman, which is really based on testimonies of victims and survivors at the commission. They come to different, quite significantly different conclusions. Gibson, from what I would say was a fairly strong reading of his data, essentially says the TLC had a positive impact. The truth did lead to reconciliation. That's essentially the issue that he looks at. Van der Merwe and Chapman are much, much more critical of the commission um, on the basis of readings of uh, victim and survivor testimony. So, in a way, the obvious question is the answer you get depends on the question you ask. And we need to be always incredibly conscious of that. The on-stage, off-stage issue is, in a way, it's a similar one. But I, guess, I mean, one of the things that I have, have tried to do in this book is it's clearly incredibly important the impact that truth commissions and trials have on issues like truth and justice, uh, human rights records of countries, all of these kinds of things. Um, but I actually also think that particularly public commissions have huge impact beyond that. I mean, some, some of you who know South Africa, or South Africans will know that a musical has recently opened in South Africa based on the life of Winnie Medicazella Mandela. And what have they used as the entry point to that life? It's an opera. Um, the Truth Commission hearing. Now, the cultural life of the TRC in South Africa has been quite extraordinary. And um, it's normally written about in cultural studies journals and in places completely separate from the kind of stuff that I normally do. And, um, and one of the things I've tried to do here is to look at you know, education curricula, memorialization, um, things around archives, um, and history, history teaching, um, and culture. Um, art, novels, opera even. Although, actually, I can't claim to mention opera. Opera doesn't feature in the book. Um, again, you know, th this is impact of a kind. Um, and it seems to me the fact that an opera is being written based on a TRC hearing such a long time after is, you know, that they've chosen that. I mean, there's so many ways you could tell many, many Kizella, uh, Mandela's story that they've chosen that as the entry point is striking. The short-term, long-term... Um, distinction I've already made that uh, you know, I think one of the problems with and it's the challenge with any evaluation is it's a snapshot of a particular moment in time there's very little work that does longitudinal work on um, either attitudes to transitional justice mechanisms or their impacts and effects um, it's yeah, and, and you get a different answer to the question of what the impact is if you ask it just after something has happened to if you ask ten, ten years ten years on so it's complicated. It's necessary. I'm, not, I'm certainly not arguing that transitional justice uh, practitioners and academics don't engage in evaluation, but it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated set of issues, particularly for public um, interventions. I guess the final point I wanted to make was, you know, there's, certainly in South Africa, there's an awful lot of attention on unfinished business. Um, and to try and finish on a more positive note, as I began, you know, why do we also ask what the finished business is? Um, and one example would be the kind of exhumations and reburials that have taken place, um, often as a result of amnesty uh, testimony, 
Um, there's an ongoing, there's a unit within the um, Ministry of Justice and Constitutional Affairs whose job is to basically work on, part of its job is to work on uh, exhumations. And I can't, there aren't hundreds of them, but fairly, you know, from time to time, they work with families, a body is located, exhumed to be buried, that family gets a kind of a form of closure. Um, and it's a very powerful thing. Always an incredibly powerful story is attached to that. A story which now increasingly isn't told publicly, actually, uh, but is an ongoing aftermath of the Truth Commission in South Africa. Great. Thanks, Paul.